John 14, we'll pick up with verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to my Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now, I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your kindness to us. For this opportunity that You've given us to gather in this place for the purpose of worshiping You. So Lord, we do offer You our worship. We have sung. We will give our offerings. We have prayed. And we come to hear from Your Word now. Lord, may we worship You. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive the truth of your word. Do your work in our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're returning again to this night prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. He's encouraging his troubled disciples by giving them promises. And this is now the third Sunday that we've considered specifically the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit and other promises that are directly related to His coming. Jesus is going away, but He's promised that He will not leave His disciples to be orphans. He's promised that He would come to them. And He did, and not only did He come to His disciples, but He has come to everyone who believes in Him, by sending the Holy Spirit. We saw last week in verse 20 that the followers of Jesus are spiritually united with God. Jesus is in the Father. We are in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in us. By the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have our sins forgiven. We're brought from death to life. We're brought out of darkness into the light of God. We're brought into perfect fellowship with God. We love God and we are loved by God. And because the Holy Spirit has sanctified us before God and is progressively purifying us, God has made His home in us as His temple. God is on earth right now in His people by the Holy Spirit. 
And as we pick up where we left off and approach verses 25 through 31, Jesus gives what we might call his last will and testament. He's about to die. He knows it. And it's only fitting that he should leave something to those who are closest to him. He doesn't have a 401k, a 403b, an IRA, life insurance, a savings account. The disciples had a collective money bag, but the guy who held it has already left. He turned out to be a betrayer, and he, I'm sure, took the money bag with him. The only earthly possession that Jesus has, as far as we know, is the very garment that he's wearing. And you'll remember that as he was crucified, the guards cast lots to see which of them would get to keep the garment. But what Jesus does have to give his disciples... What he does leave us is more valuable than anything the world could ever put a price tag on. It's something that everyone wants, but very few people have it. It's something that only Jesus can give. And it's been the focus of this entire chapter. Jesus, on the eve of his death, leaves one thing with his disciples. His peace. His peace. We'll talk more about that peace in just a moment. But look first at what he says before that. Verse 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And we know by now that this Helper, this Paraclete, Our comforter, our advocate, will come after the first helper, namely Jesus, goes back to the Father. Now the Holy Spirit isn't a replacement for Jesus on earth. They're not tag-teaming us. Jesus goes to the Father, man, I've had enough of these guys, your turn. That's That's not how this works. The Holy Spirit isn't a replacement for Jesus, but Jesus says that He would ask the Father, pray to the Father to send Him, and that the Father will send Him in My name. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Jesus. That is, He will come as an emissary, an ambassador for Jesus. Jesus has been speaking to His disciples and teaching them for three years now. They've heard everything that Jesus has taught. They've had closed-door sessions where Jesus explained things to them that other people didn't get to hear. They've asked Him their questions. But in many ways, they still don't understand what His coming meant. Now, Jesus was a teacher... He lived life with these disciples, his learners. He taught them in everyday life, but they couldn't exactly pull out their iPhone camera and record what he had to say. I read a few weeks ago that the man who invented cassette tapes has died recently. They didn't even have the cassette tape to capture Jesus' teachings. Can you believe it? They didn't have a stenographer among them to write down what Jesus said as he said it. Now, some of you are students, and this is the time of year where you get really stressed out, right? What if you could listen to your professor's lectures all semester long, but you didn't take notes, and you came down to the final exam, and a blank sheet of paper was passed out to you, and you were instructed, write down what the professor taught you this semester, 
No notes, no questions, just write. You would pass out or vomit. So there's a valid question that gets asked occasionally about the writers of Scripture, right? How do we know that they got it right when they wrote it down? You you think, how can we be sure that John, roughly 90 years old, almost 60 years after the the events that are recorded here have happened, how do we know that a 90-year-old man got it right when he wrote it down? How can we be sure that this is really what Jesus said and really what happened? Now, there's a lot that you could say about that. You could talk about the personal experience of being with Jesus, the life-changing nature of what Jesus taught. You don't just forget the things that Jesus said and did. But ultimately, it comes down to this, verse 26. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. It was a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's how you got your Bible. The writers of Scripture wrote according to their own personalities, according to their own memories, their own perspectives, their own writing styles. But the Holy Spirit so superintended the process in such a way that their understanding was clear, their memories were accurate, and every single word they wrote was exactly what God intended for them to write. The work of the Holy Spirit brought us the written Word of God. How else could we have 66 books written by 40 different men over a span of 1,500 years and its content be in perfect unity? It had to be a work of God. It had to be the work of the Holy Spirit. As Christ's emissary, His ambassador, the Holy Spirit brought back to the disciples' minds the teachings of Jesus and gave them full understanding of it. They were with Jesus for three years, but they still didn't quite get it all. But then when the Holy Spirit came, the book of Acts says He opened their understanding. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is still active in believers today. Not to give us instantaneous knowledge. Not to give us some kind of new revelation from God. But to teach us and enlighten us as we read and study the Scriptures. What the prophets and apostles wrote. And as we study and are taught by the Holy Spirit, we build up resources that the Holy Spirit can bring to the front of our minds when we need it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the wrong way to think about this verse. There is a wrong way to think about every verse, right? Don't read verse 26 and say, I have the Holy Spirit to teach me, so I don't need to waste my time reading and studying that old book. That's not the the purpose here. He won't do that. The Bible is not a supplement to your walk with the Lord. The, The Bible is your means of having a walk with the Lord. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from the Bible. 
Because this is how God speaks. The psalmist said, Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Holy Spirit will not teach you what you have not heard. His ministry to the disciples was to teach them and help them remember what they had already heard Jesus teach. And when you spend time in the Bible, in God's Word, you are laying up resources for the Holy Spirit to teach you and help you and bring to your remembrance in the time that you need it. Now, we come to the promise of peace. Do you see the connection? Maybe. Is it a coincidence that Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will help the disciples remember His Word, His teachings, and then the very next thing He promises is peace? I don't think that's a coincidence at all. How can you as a Christian have the peace of God? How can an unbeliever who is an enemy of God brought into peace with God? Peace with God and peace from God is known when the Word of God is taught and brought to our minds by the Spirit of God. Amen? If you are an unbeliever, you are at enmity with God. In order for you to have peace with God and experience salvation, you must hear the Word of God and be drawn by His Spirit to believe it. If you're a Christian who lacks peace, you need not look for it. In all the things that the world offers, you will not find it. Simply look to the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit to give you that peace. We make application this way since it's Mother's Day. There may be no more stressful job in all the world than that of a mother. Amen. Amen. Especially one of young children. I know because I live with a mother of young children. Quite often your home feels like the antithesis of peace. Peace feels like the furthest thing from your address. Let me encourage you, Christian mothers. You have the very spirit of peace living within you. Ask Him to give you that peace. Find some moment of quiet in your day. And I understand that sometimes it may not be much more than a moment. Whether it's before the kids wake up or during nap time, after they go to bed, or when you just shove them in your husband's arms and say, go outside for five minutes. Whenever you have that moment, even if the living room is a wreck, the dishes and the laundry are piled high, what it, make whatever time you can. Take a deep breath and spend some time with God. Look to His Word. Pray to Him. Ask the Spirit of peace within you to give you the peace that only He can give. That's not just for mothers of young children. Mothers of teenagers, they stress you out too, I know. I don't, I don't live with a mother of teenagers, but I used to be a teenager. 
God offers you that same peace. Even Mother's Day, the day itself can be troublesome to the hearts of some people. Maybe you had a terrible mother. It happens. Maybe you never knew your mother. Maybe you had a good mother, but she's not here anymore. Maybe you're a mother who's lost a child. Maybe you're a lady who wanted to be a mother, but the circumstances of life just didn't work that way. These things tend to trouble people on Mother's Day. It's not happy and cheerful for everybody. But let me encourage you, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. And He offers you peace, regardless of your life circumstances. You can have the peace of God because you have the Holy Spirit of God. He's able to give you peace. So we see that the peace of Christ is a peace that's brought through the Holy Spirit by God's Word. And then he tells us that his peace is unlike the world's peace. What is peace according to the world? If you look at the nations, peace is an absence of war, right? In relationships, peace is the removal of conflict. When someone dies, it's common to hear them hear someone say that they're now at peace. Meaning the struggles that they had in life have now ceased. They've come to an end. To the world, peace is an absence of conflict, an absence of struggle. So what does the world do to find peace? They struggle all the more. You struggle to end struggle. You enter into conflict to try to end conflict. You make war to try to end war. If there's no peace in a relationship, you end the relationship. If there's no peace in the marriage, you end the marriage. And some, if there's no peace in life, they end their own life. Peace is an absence of conflict and struggle. To the world. The world sees peace in that way, and people spend their time, their lives, trying their best, trying to spend their energy to get peace. But Jesus says, The peace that I give is not like the peace that the world gives. The world thinks it will have peace once it removes the struggle, but the peace that Jesus gives to you, his followers, is peace that carries you through the struggle. The peace that comes from the Holy Spirit is not an absence of conflict. It's peace in the conflict. It's not an absence of struggle. It's peace in the struggle. It's not an absence of war. It's peace in the war. God's peace is knowing that there's a world better than this one that awaits us. It's knowing that one day all will be made right. It's knowing that all the way through the trials and the struggles of this life, all our conflicts, we have God Himself with us all the way. 
One day the struggle will end. The conflict will end. And until then, we have the Holy Spirit within us giving us the peace of God that passes all understanding. The only thing we have to do is be fully convinced of it and believe in it, rest in it. The peace is there. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's a command. You know the truth of the Bible. You know that Jesus has promised to give you peace because you have the Holy Spirit. Now believe it. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. Take Jesus at His word and trust Him to give you what He has already promised. Trust Him to give you His peace. Let's look briefly at these last four verses. I I think they illustrate the outworking of this peace that Jesus leaves for His disciples. Verse 28 You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Now on the surface, it would be easy to think that the disciples' desire for Jesus to stay with them would be an expression of love. It seems reasonable. Jesus, we love you so much, we don't want you to leave. But Jesus says, if you really loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going back to my Father. And He's implying, you really don't love me as you ought. Sometimes what appears to be love is really motivated by selfishness. They're not thinking about the big picture. They just want Jesus with them. They don't want Him to leave them. Jesus gives a reason. He says, For my Father is greater than I. Now the Arians in early church history and the Jehovah's Witnesses in our own day Take this to mean that Jesus is not God and is not equal with the Father. He says, my Father is greater than I. But we know that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, and He's called the Son because He has submitted Himself to the Father and His will. He's called the Son because He's the one who came and was born as a man. Remember Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross." What does that have to do with the disciples rejoicing because he's going back to the Father? Well, what happened when he went back to the Father after his death and resurrection? 
The rest of Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself when he became a man, came to earth, completed the mission of salvation, and his disciples ought to be rejoicing at his departure, because when he returns to heaven, he will be exalted. In his state as a man on earth, Jesus said, My Father is greater than I, because Jesus had humbled himself. He had submitted himself to the will of God, to the plan of salvation. And when he goes back, he is exalted. He's given that name above every name, the name Lord. They should have rejoiced. He will be given, he has been given, that title by which he will forever be known. He is Lord. That would have been reason for them to rejoice at the departure of their master. Now what in the world does that have to do with me and the peace of God? When we live in and have the peace of God, we can deal with things that we don't particularly want to happen because we know that in the end of it, Christ will be exalted. God does everything that He does for His own glory and for the good of His people. It just doesn't always feel like it in the moment. But when we have the peace of God, we can walk through those things that we don't understand or frankly those things we don't like because we know and are confident that God is working it all out for His own glory and it will ultimately be for our eternal good. That's the peace of God. Two more verses. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. The ruler of this world that he refers to there is a reference to Satan. Because of the fallenness of creation and because of sin, Satan has... Temporary authority over this world. That's why it's in the shape it's in. That's why I don't expect it to get much better. Because he's having his way right now. Judas, who was by now on his way to betray Jesus, was just a pawn in the hand of Satan. And in the events of the next few hours, it looked like evil had the upper hand. The trial of Jesus was rigged, the beatings were severe, the mockings were cruel, the cross was excruciating. The day went dark, literally. But Jesus says, He has nothing in me. That is, Satan, the temporary ruler of this world, has no power over me. He has no claim on me. 
then why did Jesus suffer? That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Jesus himself possessed and demonstrated the same peace that he has promised to us. In the face of all that was about to happen, the trial, the beatings, the mocking, the cross, Jesus displayed to the world his love and obedience to the Father. No, in in his flesh, Jesus did not want to be crucified. That's why he prayed in the garden, Father, if it be possible, if there's another way, I'm all ears. Let this cup pass from me. But then he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus left that same peace that carried him through the sufferings of the cross with all who are his disciples. With all who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let's conclude. In his death, Jesus first gave us peace with God. That is, he made a way that we who are his enemies, rebellious in our sin, could be brought into fellowship with God. Some of you have guilt. Some of you are living in sinful rebellion against God. You know you deserve God's punishment, you are his enemy. But while you were his enemy, he loved you. Jesus laid down his life and died in your place. Also, you could have peace with God. And after we've been made at peace with God, we've been given as his children and his disciples the peace of God. This is the peace that carries us through life. Trusting in the one who saved us. To complete the work that He has started in us. And to give us peace through the struggles. Until the day comes when there are no more struggles. And we will be with Him forever. This is the peace of God. Brought to us through the Word of God. By the promised Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have made concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we know that since we have your Spirit within us, if we belong to you, That we have your peace. May we appropriate it. May we lay claim to it. And rest in it. And may whoever is here who doesn't know you. Who is still your enemy. Because of their sin. Realize that in their sin you loved them. And sent Christ to die for them. That they could have life. Eternal life with you. And be brought into your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.